everybody, and welcome to a new episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast, where we talk about the business of sports with different kinds of executives and entrepreneurs and investors and athletes and such. And I do that every week with my partner, Joe Favorito. Joe, happy new year, happy 2019. 2019, Tom, can you believe it? No, it's such a, it's a, kind of a, such a weird number. Um, Y2K but, was almost just here. Uh, so. I remember being on the Y2K committee at the NHL, yeah. and everybody thought that the whole league was going to blow up on December 31st, 1999. Yeah. Uh, we've come a long way since then. But So New Year's, uh, a new year, new, uh, new stories, new challenges, new issues. Um, we got a couple of big things to discuss as we move into Q1. Uh, probably no bigger discussion than what's happening in U.S. pro sports with the gambling issue. Oof, we haven't is talked about one that asp- I know. <laughs> one aspect of the conversation today. So we're really happy to kick off this new podcasting year with a guest who, who is one of the uh, bright lights and luminaries of the sports business over the last 20 years. Um, he just left. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm we're looking over my shoulder to see <laughs> yeah. if there's somebody standing behind me. Yeah. Uh, please open the door and let's right. get our real guest here. Yes. No, we, uh, we're really pleased to have Seth Rabinowitz here uh, joining the, the show. Well, so thanks welcome. for having me. Well, thanks welcome, for having Seth. me, guys. Um, so, here. yeah, so, so let me just refresh everybody's memory. In case you don't know Seth or don't know about Seth, but many of you do know of Seth because he has a... Uh, um, or a his work. Or his well. work, yeah. exactly. Uh, but a, a, a bunch of years at the NFL, 12 in full? No, 11. I'm sorry, 11, okay. Uh, so we're old colleagues. We didn't overlap, but we kind of have a lot of the same friends and connections from my years there. Uh, and then after that, um, a bunch of years with the Jets, the New York Jets in pro mm-hmm. football. Um, he recently left the Jets, still working with them, which we'll talk about, but he recently left officially, and he's running his own business called Rabinowitz Ventures, as opposed to Rabinowitz Consulting. Well, <laughs> these days, if you don't have ventures in the name, right, uh, exactly. people don't take you yeah. seriously. So. Or, or, or you need you need to project the image of working with other people like Rabinowitz and Partners or well, that would Rabinowitz be, Group. Yeah. But then my children would want to stake in what I'm doing, and so I exactly. specifically excluded them. Yeah, from and you pre- you're preempting any legal action That's right. That's by your right. children. Yes. Uh, anyway, Seth, we're really happy to have you. There's a lot we want to talk about, especially about what's happening in sports and at both the league and the team level, sure. particularly as it relates to some of the big trends in sports tech, gambling, fan engagement, this in-stadium experience, and, yep. and you could write a book on all this. So we're going to have to we're going to have to address those uh, carefully. Uh, but let's hear your story. How did you make your way into the mm. business, and how how did you proceed sure. uh, as the years went yeah. by? Well, I would love to say that it was a uh, grand design, but that would be inaccurate. It was really through the back door. So if uh, we rewind now more than 20 years to the mid-90s, I was uh, a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania, and uh, one of the lecturers there in the program I was in ran a small consulting firm. And as a summer job, I started working for him, and then as one of the uh, consulting assignments that we had, we started working indirectly for the National Football League. So we were working for another firm who was ultimately, we were like a sub-consultant. And over the period of about a year, 18 months, uh, our group rose to the fore and the other lead consultant kind of receded and lo and behold, the NFL became one of our clients. And then uh, over a period of time, uh, the gentleman who was the actual client, as often happens, asked me, I was a young guy then, if I wanted to sort of jump ship to the client side. So that was, I came in through the back door. I probably when I started that 
process wasn't even aware that there were such things as jobs in sports, right? I mean, I, I thought sports right. was like what everybody thinks it is. I didn't even know that there was a business of sports. I learned quickly. Uh, I liked what I saw. And so in spring of 1998, I joined the, the NFL league office in New York full time. Wait, so what month did you start? Uh, April. I left the first week of April okay. of 1998. Well, I may have I crashed realize. on the escalator that <laughs> first day then, because I think Did it was like... Did you see a guy April, carrying a box right, out with I a bunch of um, swag? Whose chair is this? It may have been like April 4th, 1998, I, something that like that. Literally, I think it was sounds a Monday. About, I mean, I think it was I, You the know what? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite yeah. certain it was actually the Friday of the end of that week. Okay. Like, I'm thinking April yeah. 8th was my last day. Yeah, it's entirely wow. possible. Wow. Okay, I didn't realize that. So 280 Park Avenue. and 15th floor. Yep. Uh, I was on 16, so I was okay. on NFL property, wow. so I was on 16. Right. Um, so I uh, held a variety of assignments. I'll fast forward because there's a lot of years, but uh, I held a variety of assignments. I started in sort of new business development. I did corporate development and strategy. Uh, I did a significant stint in international, which took me uh, at the end of that to Europe, where I worked on NFL Europe, living uh, mm. in Frankfurt for about three years, uh, the last three years of NFL Europe. Came back uh, to the United States uh, to kind of uh, wrap up my career at the league office into a marketing role. Um, then took a little bit of a break. When I had gone over to Germany, I was ready for a new challenge. That was sort of my motivation for taking the plunge to do that. I was ready for a new challenge. Um, that assignment probably didn't last as long as I had hoped it would, and so uh, I kind of still had that itch. And so. 2009, I left the league office and did a few did uh, some consulting for a couple of years. But then the opportunity with the Jets came along, and wouldn't you know it, the itch had also come back in me. And this is a like it's a business that it, once it gets in your blood, right, right, it's in there, and there's really nothing like it. People have asked me many times why did you stick with it. I don't want to get all sentimental, but there's something pretty special, right. you know. Right. Two minutes before kickoff, the crowd is assembled. There's the excitement in the air. It's a beautiful September day. Mm -hmm. The ref blows the whistle. I always like that. Yeah. So that itch came back. Uh, it was a great opportunity at the Jets, and so uh, for the last chunk of time, uh, I was the SVP of marketing and fan engagement for the Jets. Uh, but then, sure enough. I sort of look back and the itch to try something else came back again and right. I had done more than 20 years total because I first started working in the National Football League in the summer of 1995 so it had been 23 years and I you know before this is all over I, there's probably a few other things that are worth uh, exploring out there so uh, I guess I did leave in September full-time the Jets remain a client of mine uh, and I'm still engaged in a couple of the uh, important things that I was working on so you, you talked about a lot of departments, but you didn't really talk about your functional roles. Mm. How would you characterize right. yourself? Because you became a CMO, which is a kind of an iconic title yeah. in all the business, but particularly in sports, because it's, you know, you, you, are you a marketing guy? Well, I'm a, I would always call myself a generalist. I never, okay. uh, both by my disposition and probably by the nature of the work I did, I never felt comfortable kind of being a such and such guy, fill in the blank of right. anything. I always felt like, I wanted to be a utility player who could do what was required. Um, for me, what was this, I guess the through line was I guess I always had a good understanding of two things. One, sort of what we were trying to accomplish, and two, I could kind of channel the fan. I could understand the customer and work from the outside in, and I think that's always what served me well in this business. Thankfully. The customers in this business have relatively simplistic wants and needs, right? It is not rocket science, thankfully. I've managed 25 years almost in this business. Right. But uh, so, 
Am I a marketing guy? I don't know. I was able to understand how to properly position a professional right. football team relative to the wants and needs of the target audience. And that's if you look at a textbook example right. of what is marketing, that's marketing. Right. But no, I would not say I'm a marketing guy. I would say I'm right. a business guy. Okay. One thing that before we kind of get into some of the topics we want to talk about, league versus team. A lot of people who listen to this try to figure out which side they want to mm. be on. What was the biggest challenge and what was the difference yeah, working at the that's league? That's a great question. Uh, they both have their great strengths and, and, and some weaknesses. So the awesome thing at the National Football League office was just the power and the scope and kind of the resources and the ability to really think on a broad canvas, right? 32 teams, the entire country, and you know you could do business with the, the best of the best in terms of partners. And so it was just an incredible kind of palette board to work with. But there was a bit, and certainly when I was there, there was a bit of kind of um, abstraction to it, right? It was behind front lines, and it was a little bit, your fingernails didn't really have a lot of dirt underneath them. Um, and so the great thing about working at a team is you are on the front lines, you're really living it every day, you know, mm -hmm. it's very real, there's no abstraction at all, it's cause and effect almost instantaneously. And the great thing with the Jets is you get feedback, you know, immediately whether it's successful or not. And so that was really fulfilling. The flip side, which you don't understand ever if you work at the league office, is the volatility of winning and losing. Yeah. And it's emotional volatility for everybody because you can't help, no matter how professional you are, you can't help but get caught up in it. Um, and it affects the business, right? Because it affects your own confidence in your decision making, it affects your partners, it affects mm -hmm. um, your revenue. Right. Uh, it, your sales story. Right, everything, right. your right. cost structure. So, the, And it's volatile, and it can be, a, in football, right, it can be a puff of wind, a bad call by a ref, whatever, a, a freak rainstorm, anything. And so that lack of control, and most people who are successful in business like to think that they're kind of in control mm -hmm. of what they do, and you find out quickly that you're not. Yep. And so that was, for me, the hardest part of the adjustment. It was like, wow. I mean, I knew it was kind of going to be ups and downs, but this is really bumpy. This is really a bumpy ride. Seth, one thing I noticed when um, having worked in two of the leagues uh, and having had lots of interactions with club people and visiting clubs yeah. and, and being in those environments from time to time was how the, the, the winning and losing situation affected the environment oh. of, the, of the whole organization. Yeah. So. I've visited football teams that have lost yeah. on Mondays, yeah, yeah, that have yeah. lost on Sundays, yeah, and everybody's walking around yes. with, with a dark cloud, with over, a dark cloud over them. And, you know, I go in as a league guy, everything was beautiful, and, you know, I'm and in that a good was, mood. And, and honestly, the team really would resent that. Right? The teams right. would resent that because they would feel there was a real tone deafness and a right. lack of empathy. Right. And look, the, I always said this, the NFL was 500 every weekend, right? I right. mean, somebody <laughs> wins somebody. And honestly, the tragic defeats are great for the league because mm -hmm. it means people watch till the end of the game right. and the blowout wins are great for the league but right. if you're on the wrong side of that it's incredibly yeah. painful and I had to one of my kind of big leadership challenges I had a lot of young people working for me who would really get caught up in it you know I had a little bit of whatever gray hair I could sort of uh, take a bigger view of it but for the young people it took a lot of leadership to keep them focused on what was working right, right. and to understand like there's a lot of metrics in professional sports. The score on the scoreboard at the end of the game is a really important one, but there's a lot of other metrics yeah. that are equally important to the pro side, i.e. we're doing this for money side, right. not the sports side. Mm -hmm. And so I would spend a lot of time reminding people, like, there's a lot of ways we're keeping score here. One of them is the final score when they blow the whistle, but there's other things that we're working on, and let's look how those are doing and keep people focused and also give them kind of 
like um, you know small victories. Like here, we did something that worked out well. You know, so that there's something to to attach yourself to. But yeah. Mondays were going to stink, right? And unfortunately, <laughs> right. during my tenure, there was a lot of rotten Mondays. Yeah. So the, ma- the making of chicken salad is what we used to call it. <laughs> yes. Good. So Good. obviously, as technology became more pervasive, mm-hmm. both with the fans and mm-hmm. their behavior, the rise of smartphones and uh, streaming technology, things like that, and the opportunities are presented from a B two B standpoint, uh, player uh, tracking, things like that. D- did things get I imagine things are quite intense right now at the team level in terms of all that needs to be considered both on the B to C, like your actual fan Mm -hmm. management, fan relationship stuff, and also the way the organizations are dealing with the players uh, and and all the technology opportunities that are before them right now. Could you talk about that? I mean, has it gotten more intense the last couple of years? Yes, because the pace of change is more rapid, the stakes are higher, and the ambiguity is is higher higher than it was and so you know kind of the stakes are higher but you really aren't sure if the decisions you're making are going to be right or wrong and so yeah it's intense i would say there was a couple of major technology forces that really were it's an overused word but that were really disruptive to uh certainly the jets and the national football league but i would say all pro sports um to me the biggest couple over the last I don't know, five years, ten years, was the rise of the secondary ticket market, which was fueled entirely by technology, obviously, mm-hmm. and marketing, um, but is a technological creature, which that fundamentally changed the na- nature of the relationship between the team and its customers, right? Mm-hmm. Because 30 years ago, 40 years ago, there was a box office, and people waited in line and bought tickets. Mm-hmm. Um, now, a significant number of tickets for every event, this is not the Jets or New York or the NFL, this is every live event, uh, sports theater, concerts, and so forth, are traded on a secondary market. Um, and so just the nature of the customer relationship, how customers buy, all that has changed rapidly. So that's a very disruptive force that everybody is still coming to terms with. And the other is the hashtag, which is, as a marketer, this was the one that drove me the craziest. I no <laughs> longer had the ability to control, right? A, a pro football brand is always kind of a public trust, and right. so I never was going to have complete control. But now anybody can type in hashtag Jets and be part of a global conversation right. about my brand right. in ways that I cannot control, in ways that are fueled by their emotion. Talk about Monday yeah, mornings yeah. I mean, and Sunday nights. Or during the game. Or during the game. And they can right. say things that are great and uplifting, or unfortunately they can say things that are pretty rotten. And um, so for people who care about the integrity of a brand, the ability for everybody who's interested to be part of that global conversation instantaneously is just a massive, massive disruption. So how did you deal with it? So well, yeah, I mean, it's how did you t- talk about how you yeah. evolve your social right. media okay. work and, right. and your team? Because I know, yeah, uh, I mean, Joe and I talked about this and have seen this ourselves in, in all of our travels. You know, seven, eight years ago, six, seven years ago, but there was hardly a social media team in any of these entities. Oh, definitely, right. And, so, now, and now, as right. I like to say, they're, they they should be the smartest people in the room. Yeah, um, and they. You think they are because if you're my age, you don't know what the heck they're saying half the time. So you you hope they are because it sounds smart and you just hope they're right. Um, You deal with it in a lot of different ways. I think the first is you have to come to terms with the fact that it's been disrupted and it's not going back to the way it was, right? So that and that's easier said than done because a lot of people are still, I think, in sort of denial around that reality that they're you're never going to put that genie back in the bottle. Um, So that's the first step. The second step, my opinion, and not everybody 
frankly shares this, is I think you have to wade in and be a full participant in the conversation. Good, bad, or ugly. Good, bad, or ugly. I, no. Because I, I think that customers demand it. I think they can sniff out BS very quickly now, extremely quickly, and inauth inauthentic behavior is the biggest sin of all. Um, yep. Now, that was not an opinion that was shared by everybody. Mm -hmm. I'll be candid. Not everybody in my own organization, certainly not at my peers at other organizations. And I get why, right? These are big brands. There's a lot to lose. Mm -hmm. And these conversations can be very ugly. They can right. be very uncomfortable. Um, but they're happening. And not liking them doesn't mean they go away. And ignoring them doesn't mean it doesn't affect you. So my view is always that you need to wade in. Um, so to that end, and I think I was, you know, my... my strategies were partly uh, implemented. Yes, teams undoubtedly have grown their staff. They've upgraded the caliber of the staff, the number of staff, the amount of money spent. Um, and what you've seen probably more than anything, just in terms of the actual physical representation of that, is sports teams today are as much media companies as anything else, right? They, uh, they produce hundreds, thousands of hours of original content a year for social. Um, you know, the amount of time, money, effort, brain power that the Jets spend on producing video content, graphics content, text content is enormous. Thousands and thousands of man hours, huge investments of money. So you try to provide, um, I don't want to call it a safe harbor, but you try to provide a unique, you try to provide a, a positive expression of what's going on. You try to sort of speak in your own voice. Right? You try to be present and tell your story your way rather than just stepping back and letting other people tell your story their way. Mm -hmm. um, and, but you have to understand that it's just one voice, one version of the story, not the definitive version of the story anymore. And do, you, do you think commissioners and owners should be active on social media? You know, that is an outstanding question. Um, only I've got an opinion. Yes, if they're prepared to do the things I said. But right. if they only want to dabble and dip a toe in occasionally, then absolutely not. Yeah. Um, if okay. they want to be a full participant, then sure. It's kind of all or nothing. Isn't exactly. It? Yeah. You're either all in. Yeah, like Dana White or Roger Goodell. Like. Yeah, and you see so. NFL owners. Some have been um, in. Some have dabbled. Some are probably appropriately right. uh, only behind the scenes. Right. But if there's no reason not to be, as long as you accept that you must be authentic. You must have a degree of transparency, and you can't just you know spew propaganda. And you've got to continue and sustain the engagement. Yeah. And if you want to, if you're up for those things, it's all good. No, it's interesting how it correlates to the owner's past business sure. interests. So we always we talk a lot about uh, Mark Cuban and Ted Leonsis, yeah. who have been mastering the art of direct to consumer communication yeah. since they bought their teams. Right. And I look at them as modern media role models mm -hmm. as I leaders. Agree. I would agree. Um, but as you know from following them, they are prepared to mix it up. Yes. And it, it really is different. I, I just, I'll, I'll note one thing that we talk about in my class is that when the Ray Rice incident came mm. to light a couple years ago, um, I don't know if you were paying attention to this at the time. Oh, I was. But, well, no, I mean, no, I know the incident, yeah. but I mean, the, uh, as it relates to the commissioner, um, he was fairly actively tweeting. Yes. And he stopped tweeting that week. Yes. Literally, just. Yes. He basically, he should have just removed his account. Yes. So I would take screenshots of, let's say, a year later with Roger Goodell's Twitter uh, screen yeah. showing the last few a year yeah, ago, and then I'd right. show Dana White yeah. where he's like getting in right. verbal fights with people yeah. from te an hour ago. Yeah. And it's like, guys, that's a big difference right now in how leaders can lead in modern media. Yeah, and look, I and I'm not saying there, there are reasons why, for, 
vis-a-vis NFL that maybe right. they shouldn't, but whatever. But it, it seems like it's a huge question. Were well, you allowed to be active? You no, I chose not to be. So okay. we had policies um, that uh, governed it, appropriately so, for all staff and recognized that everybody who uh, you know was affiliated with the team was representing the team and the brand. And because my name was in the media guides and so forth, I chose not to be. I am a read-only social media <laughs> consumer. I do not mm. post. Um, just because I didn't feel like I had anything to add to the conversation right. from my role, uh, I chose not to be. But I think, apropos of your point with respect to Commissioner Goodell or others, stepping in and out becomes a story unto itself. And yeah, so yeah. If, that, if, you're, if that's going to be your model, you've already kind of failed the first test, which is you've proven it's inauthentic because you're right. only doing it when it's convenient yeah. or comfortable. And therefore, when you're active and when you're inactive becomes kind of a meta story that can shape yeah, the interpretation really of what point. you're doing. Yeah. So that's like you failed the first insight. If you right. go shut up when it's tough, like everybody says, oh, where is he now? The times are tough and he disappeared yeah. into the woodwork. So that's why I say either you're in... In which case, it's the good, the bad, the ugly, or you're out, like I was, in which case, just read um, and be smart about it. But it's an incredibly, people ask me all the time, it's kind of like a parlor game now, like social media, good or bad for society, in totality. There's no answer, but it's not. It's also not obvious, uh, if you look at the last years, whether it is a good or bad force. But it's also, in some ways, irrelevant, because it's here. Yeah. It's not going and away. As I, as I like to say, the toothpaste is not going back Correct, to the tube. Right. <laughs> the genie's out of the bottle, whatever you want to say. So, if you right. want to be uh, functional, and if you want to be good at your job, you better figure it out. Yeah. So, morally and whatever, historians will it's really that. interesting that you said like two forces. The the, the first one uh, was the second yeah. Tech and the second was yeah. I forget how you phrase the it. The rise of the hashtag. Like yes. that's, it's a really interesting interesting way of framing it because it's really true. Um, for for many decades, teams, team owners, commissioners didn't have to really worry about the voice of the fans other right. than Vinny from Queens calling yes. in to complain about Sam Darnold's you know fourth yes. quarter pass or something yes. like that. And then suddenly, with the rise of social media and particularly mobile phones combined, everybody, uh, everybody is weighing in. And I know and it's instantly. pretty rare that, and I watch a lot of sports, it's pretty rare, at least for the games I'm most paying attention to, that I'm not on Twitter checking hashtags Absolutely. for the games of I'm course, following. Of course, everybody so. does it now. And it's valuable, right? As a fan and as a business person in the, mark, in the industry, yeah. it's indispensable, I would dare say. Right. Um, and you also find that right there's a lot of downtime in sports, yeah. and it's nice well, to that's have something a good point. to, to yeah. fill fill the time and keep you um, interested. But yeah, it's um, it's such a profound change that it took me like a long time to sort of really crystallize what to be able to communicate. Like, what's the difference? And the difference is instantly, effortlessly, anybody in the world is part of a global conversation about your brand. What, what percentage of teams do you think are doing it well? Across all leagues? Yeah, just in your... I mean, I know you're uh, spitballing, but... 10%. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. I would, say, I, I would have guessed yeah. probably close. Yeah. So, go ahead. Most are doing it poorly. Yeah. So, moving on to a little bit of the same topic. Uh, mobile, fan engagement, yeah. digital, social. Let's talk about gambling. Yes. yes. And not only gambling from where we sit today, which is... Uh, at the end of 2018 with... Beginning Wa- of 19. Beginning of 19 officially. with Washington, D.C. just coming on board. Um, and obviously New Jersey being well involved, and yep. the Jets have had some pretty aggressive moves in the space. Um, 
talk about it from from your perspective, from a mobile versus a social gathering, which we talked a yeah. little bit about before the podcast, and fan engagement versus you know the fears or interests of the of the gambling world, which, which people think will drive sports to crazy, all kinds of crazy. Yes. So. Well, and this for me has been a very interesting. Um, Almost revolution because the, certainly that I worked at the in the National Football League for twenty years and the, the and there was no policy. never any gambling going right. on. Right. Well, but the so. official policy was uh, mm. strong resistance. You couldn't right? even mention it. Exactly. I worked there. Right. No, you couldn't. Right. You couldn't even talk about fantasy gaming. Right. Fantasy was a, a big hurdle to get over, and then it was right. a very tentative approach mm-hmm. to fantasy, and so it was extremely resistant to it. Even up until a couple of years ago, obviously the NFL and all the major leagues were filing briefs against the kinds of legislation that. Jersey. In New Jersey. And until elsewhere. months ago. Yes. <laughs> right. uh, and so it's been kind of almost a revolution in terms of the about face, um, which I welcome because as a person whose business is fan engagement, um, having a little skin in the game, money at stake, certainly makes my job easier, right? And um, if you have uh, gambled on a game, you are much more engaged in the game and the, the whole trappings beyond it. So as a fan engagement professional, I think it's a very positive development. However, and this is a big however, it is fundamentally changing and will accelerate the pace of change of something that fantasy already and red zone already unlocked in football, which is the nature of fandom is changing rapidly and unfortunately from team affinity to player affinity. Mm -hmm. And so people, everybody's got favorite players, but the number of people who say they have a favorite team is declining and precipitously. And that's a problem. You're basing that on on research? like Yes. Okay. Um, so that's research that's ongoing. They have a long time series of this. You know, right. well, do you have a favorite team? Who's your favorite team? And right. the percentage of people who say, "Oh yeah, I have a favorite team," is yeah. declining. do you know what it's down to? Well, I can't say what okay. it's down okay. to, um, but just it doesn't surprise me. I just no, right? Just curious. Yeah, but and and it's not hard to figure out why, yeah. right? I mean, think about it. And I tell a story. I have a ten-year-old son, and um, he's just started playing fantasy football with all his ten-year-old friends, and his birthday was in September. Um, and it was on a Sunday. The Jets had played. It was uh, the I think week two when uh, the Jets played Cleveland on Thursday night. So I had a free Sunday. Right. Um, the Giants game's on in the background as everybody's running around the backyard. And um, there's 12 10 year olds over, and you know they'd run by the TV from time to time, and not once did one of them ask what the score of the game was. All they asked was, how many yards does Beckham have? How many this? How mm. many that? They only cared about the statistics and the players, not the teams and the scores. And so these are the customers of tomorrow, right? These are kids just starting to play fantasy. This is the prime time age to hook them. If you get them before age 12, you got them. And so this is a big difference. And gambling is going to make it even more so because it's fantasy times 10. Uh, the nature of fandom is going to change. And so, again, as a, fa- as a fan engagement professional, I love the fact that now people have a vested interest, but it makes me very concerned that what is the nature and the sort of interface of their interest is changing, and probably in ways that are not good for the long term, because obviously the teams endure, right? The players are volatile, and they move around, they get injured, they come and they go, but the team endures. And if you don't have the enduring connection that's based on deep team affinity, I think it's going to be much more volatile. Right, and that's something we've discussed many times in this podcast and in my class is that's exacerbated by the proliferation accessibility of short-form highlight videos. Correct, that's why I said red where you can es- right. right yeah. Where you can essentially, totally. quote, watch the game yes. in a number of short bursts. Right. NBA Twitter, uh, Snapchat stories for NFL games, whatever. Um, it's a pretty good experience, actually, 
if you are a certain level fan of, for example, going to YouTube at around 4.30 on Sundays and getting really nicely produced 12, 13 yeah, minute highlights yeah. of every game in the league, right. and you've just saved yourself three hours and 20 minutes. Correct. So if you want to say that the hashtag was one of the fundamental disruptors, another one is TL semicolon DR, right? Too long, too long to read, right. because it's the same thing. Um, and it scares the heck out of me for that reason. Yeah. Because, yes, there, when uh, I got started in this business, and certainly when I was a kid, the only way to consume was a three-hour linear oh. thing. And people loved it. The ebbs and flows, the whole thing, And you right? accepted the terms of, course, of those 70 ad spots. You embraced the terms because <laughs> the drama, the build, the, right. the, the climax, the denouement, the whole thing, right? It was a construct. And now, again, you take my 10-year-old son, it, it, he doesn't even understand the, the premise of watching it well it comes on at one o'clock you have to sit on the sofa at one o'clock yeah. to watch it and you have to watch the commercials because you have to wait and so again it's fundamental change right so related to that like i'd love to get your opinion on what the nba is doing about the atomization mm -hmm. of their games where you can buy access yeah. you can buy individual games right. digitally for 6.99 yes. you can buy fourth quarter access yes. for 1.99 now they're adding different variations of that where you can buy second half i think for 2.99 yeah. or just third right. whatever do you think this is a good idea because it feels though as I've said publicly many times, I feel like the leagues are being complicit in this nature of fandom change. That could be pretty drastic well, this is the and hardest, relate back to the core right, product. This is the hardest thing to know, right? Because there are so many... So you go back to Red Zone, because it was a simpler time, but right. the same question uh, with NFL Red Zone 20-odd years ago now, uh, Neil Austrian. Um, are you kind of sowing the seeds of your own destruction and building in your own obsolescence, or are you disrupting yourself before somebody else does it right. to you. There is no answer, right? right? Or I'm certainly not smart enough. But the one thing I think I have learned over my career is the customer is always right. And most things there was the want or the need before there was the thing to... It's the rarest of examples. There are some where truly people didn't know what they wanted until they saw it. Mm -hmm. You know, famously the minivan or right. whatever. Right. Okay, I don't know if that's true or not. My guess is it's not. Right. There were people saying to Lee Iacocca before, you know, it would be really great if it kind of drove like a car, but it had room for my stuff. And yes, it took somebody to stitch all together and design a minivan, but they didn't just invent it from whole cloth. People don't, they're not mm -hmm. smart enough to do that, and they don't take risks like that generally. So is it better to embrace inevitable change and try to shape it onto your own terms or to try to resist it? I think in the end, it's better to embrace it and try to shape it, but that's the hardest decisions that any business person, I think, has to confront, because if you get it wrong, you can kill your thing. Right, and we're dealing, and as we pointed out, we had our conference a few weeks ago, and this came up in our media panel, and I made the point that, you know, we're talking about stuff that's well beyond sports and fan engagement, that's human psychology, yes. human behavior, and that a generation of young people such as your son who's being raised on screens, so-called digital natives, we don't even really know the effects of this right. in terms of the way they're going to process information and media yes. as they get older. We're just starting to get a sense of this, uh, this idea that it's probably going to be very different than what we've had historically. No question. I see it. I have three at different ages who kind of represent, I think, different aspects of that digital native phenomenon, but my youngest for sure, and he's had two older brothers to kind of, so he's quite accelerated in his uh, consumption because he's been exposed to a lot of stuff. But yeah, I think 
there's a couple of observations I've had. One is just the kind of fluidity with which they move from screen to screen to screen and their complete indifference. Mm -hmm. Like, when I, and I was uh, well into my 40s before I got, like, my first kind of big flat panel TV, and I put it on the living room wall as, like, a great achievement in my life, right? I had aspired (laughs) to, like, bigger is better and thinner is better. My kids, they don't care what they watch right. on. And so uh, here for me, like when I got the 65-inch screen, I felt like I'd really arrived. They're just as happy to watch yeah. on their phone. Yeah. Right. So they don't care. And they'll move from screen to screen, from right. platform to platform with complete fluidity and indifference. And the other thing is the the efficacy, I, because you mentioned YouTube, of the algorithms now, Netflix would be similar, of you might also like. Mm-hmm. And right. so the, the process of discovery, but also the kind of rabbit hole that you go down, like... When we watched, you would start watching football at 1 o'clock on Sunday, and then there was a 4 o'clock game, and then lo and behold, later on, they invented an 8 o'clock game, and it was perfect. You just watched the whole thing, and then, if you know, there was a game on Monday also. But now, at any moment, they can be pulled away by something else, and I see my kid, I'm like, what are you guys watching? Where'd you find this? And like, oh, it was just suggested to us. We clicked on it. We liked it. And we saw, um, for those who are listening and haven't had a chance to scroll back, the great article that the Times, the New York Times did the last week of December with Ninja, having Ninja come oh, that's in right. yes. and talk right. about kind of his viewing habits and what he does. But uh, one thing I want to talk about is the screen and the fan experience in-game, which yeah. you've been very, very intimately involved with yes. in trying to bring yes. some aspects of the NFL into the 21st century yes. of what can go on on scoreboards and how you engage. Right. Um, more people going to games, less people going to games, but more importantly, the people who are going, how has the engagement changed and how will it continue to change? Yeah, great question. Um, it's changed a lot. So let's take the, the most basic thing first, which is the provision of accessible Wi-Fi. So that's an abs- that's like uh, electricity now or mm. like a bathroom. With 5G still to come. Hopefully sooner yeah. rather than later. Yeah. But uh, yeah. most stadiums now have gotten, between uh, DAS and Wi-Fi, mm. they've gotten connectivity to be reasonably good. So even mm. five years ago, that was definitely not the case. And mm. we would all be frustrated. You couldn't make a call. You couldn't get uh, stuff to download. Now, generally, when I go to places, that seems most have put the, the dollars and the infrastructure in. So... But that is an absolute expectation. That is table stakes, and um, that's the enabler for everything. So, you know, the notion that you want sort of people not on their device and watching what you're putting on your court or your field or whatever is... Um, unrealistic. Again, the customer is going to. There prevail. go the Nick City dancers out the door. Once well, no, but so you have yeah. to. But again, you don't yeah. want to then make it all about. So that's where right. you have to find the sweet spot. So what I've always tried to do. Again, I'm not resisting that people are going to do their own thing, but I've also tried to provide um, ways to still leverage what ultimately is the reason to go to the game, which is the communal experience. Because mm-hmm. if it's only about watching what happens and so forth. You can get that in a number of places, and, and some, for many people, they think it's better to watch from the comfort of their home, but you cannot get the power of the roar of the crowd and the, the, the tribal passion of being there. And so I've tried to find ways to take the small personal device and leverage it into some kind of communal experience. Some have been more successful than others. What, what have some of the successes been? Well, so I think the first thing we did was um, we tried to, like, gamify the mobile device we tried to do like last year we tried to do a the f- world's first augmented reality t-shirt cannon so you know mm-hmm. how the guys on the field shoot mm-hmm. real t-shirts into the crowd 
We said, nah, I can only do 500 of those a game. Let's see if we can do another 5,000 virtually. And so we fired T-shirts off of the video board, and you open up the team app, and you try to catch one with your phone. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Um, and it worked, but it wasn't mm. perfect. It was yeah. a good learning experience, early days. But that would be one example. Mm -hmm. um, we try to do things where... Uh, one person, like, you know, the normal trivia and stuff like that, one person is doing it on screen, but others can play along yeah. on their own device to be part of the fun. So we tr try to do things like that. And then of late, um, we've been exploring ways of kind of creating opportunities for people who sit near each other to somehow kind of c combine forces, right? Because that sort of feeling like you're among your yeah, fellow partisans yeah. in the crowd is... Especially with season ticket holders. Right, that, yeah. exactly, is so much a part of the experience, uh, and that's being put under pressure for a lot of reasons, the secondary ticket market, uh, all sorts of things, um, and people just kind of in their own space. So been trying, and frankly, one of the things um, which I'm pursuing now with my Rabinowitz Ventures uh, activity is an idea that really targets that very specific desire, which is to enable through uh, digital and people's personal devices another platform by which they can connect up with the fans immediately around them and in so doing kind of enhance everybody's experience mm -hmm. and then also allow it to interact with the rest of the arena the stadium what have you mm -hmm. so that's something that um, I'm working hard on and I'll be ready to roll out uh, probably by 1st of February cool on the gambling side in the communal experience yeah. one of the things that both of you guys talked about was the the misconception that everything is going to be yeah. on a mobile device. Yeah, sure. Talk a little bit about yeah. and, and Ted Leonsis has been big on this saying we're going to make our arena into a communal gathering. Yeah. Into a sports book. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and an add, uh, uh, an add-on to that question, Seth, yeah. is in the case of the Jets yeah. and the Giants and MetLife Stadium, yeah. there's a physical separation between the physical place to bet, which is the Meadowlands yes. racetrack, Correct. which is across the parking lot. Yes. Two, just two questions related to that. One is are fans currently, let's say at halftime, running across the no, parking lot? Okay. okay. Before game, yes. Okay, before game, fine. Yes. Um, and do you see a do you see a future where the arena proper, that yeah, left stadium, sure. would have windows, betting windows? Well, I can see questions. the future. That's more of a question of the regulatory framework in terms of the NFL's policies and procedures. So that's something that the NFL currently does not allow, but I can certainly envision that. And you can go to Europe right now and see that at every soccer stadium. Mm, of course, right? They yeah. have... Uh, uh, windows, kiosks, yeah. kiosks yeah. and windows that you can walk up to, even during the game, and place uh, you know any number of bets. Mm -hmm. um, and they're running props on the dasher boards during soccer games. You know, uh, three to two says. Well, but if you're X building a stadium, goal. sorry to interrupt, but if yeah. you're building a stadium right now, like the new LA stadium, right. which well, is going to cost a lot of money, you've got to be making provisions. For I would this hope now. so. Yeah. and I okay. think it, I think the NFL will ultimately relax those things because right. again, whatever. Um, concerns you have, be they integrity concerns, moral concerns, what have you, there's no functional difference between placing that wager on your mobile device and pla placing that wager at a kiosk, right? There, mm -hmm. That's an absolutely arbitrary line. There is no functional difference in, from any kind of concern. If you say, I'm worried about the integrity of the game, I'm worried about the morality of people, you know, betting the rent money, whatever, those things could all happen with equal mm. uh, facility on a mobile device or at a tout window. And my opinion is that the win for the industry sports betting is a low margin business right sports betting is not a uh, sports betting is a good net to catch whales that you can bring in to play mm -hmm. your higher margin gaming products but sports betting unto itself because the nature of odds if they do a good job straddling the proposition they're going to basically pay out roughly equal on both sides of the thing 
of the wager, and so it's a low margin business. But the win for the industry is not to get, now that it's more into the sunlight, is not to get the guy who's had a bookie for the last 10 years to suddenly say, see you later. Um, it's to get somebody who is a casual or non-better to come in, and a lot of them are going to respond right. more to the communal aspects of friendly wagering. These are not going to be hardcore gamblers. They're going to be people, like you see in horse racing now, who mm -hmm. play because it's their entertainment money, and they don't care if they win or they lose. They just want to have a little something at stake so they're socially relevant with the rest of their friends. Mm -hmm. And maybe they like the color of the horse's silks, or right. they right. like the name, or what? they got a hunch. Which, yeah. which was the original premise of both March Madness and the, how March Madness was built, because Absolutely. people would see the Duke is kind of cool, and I'll go bet on it. Correct. A, some, and also fantasy, which is really Absolutely. the communal right. aspects of fantasy. So I, yeah, so I think it would be an enormous mistake to only focus. I think the mobile is great because it's mm. with you 24-7, uh, and if you have a thought in the middle of the night. But, again, to my earlier point, that it is incumbent upon everybody in the sports event business to make going to the event still mm. worth your time, money, yep. and effort. And a big part of that is going to be embracing the inherently fun communal aspects of a little friendly wagering and making it part of the experience. All right, I've, I've got to follow, going back to the digital side for a second, because there was an announcement recently that one of the sports digital media companies, The Score, yeah. announced that they were going to actually do, yeah, right. they got the license to actually provide the platform yeah. for betting. I'm fascinated by this question, because yeah. ultimately this is about customer acquisition, customer ownership. You bet. Who is going to ultimately be most successful in owning that piece of business. So you got, just to frame it, the sports books and the casinos that are trying. Yes. So you hear play Sugar House ads right. constantly, constantly on WFAN right yeah, now, by constantly. the way. What a windfall uh, You've got DraftKings and FanDuel yeah. and others like them. Yeah. Uh, you've got now media companies yep. laying down the gauntlet. And yep. if, if the score can do it, that means... ESPN can do it, and Yahoo can do it, yeah. and Barstool. Like, right. Technically, anybody can do it yeah. once you get the license. Yeah. And then you have, of course, the specter of the leagues not wanting to give up, in my opinion, the business long term. So that's the question, and I want to bring it back to when the NFL, you were there, or you were the Jets at the time, when the NFL announced that they were going to be the first league to, to actually provide its own uh, fantasy platform. Yes. That was a pretty big move. Yeah, it was at the league office then. Okay. So that was a pretty big move. Could So who might win this battle? Yeah. And, could, and could, will leagues be competitors in it? You know, it's an amazing question. I, I can't say I have an answer, but I'll give you a couple of thoughts. Um, I think the leagues, knowing the, the NFL fantasy is a good um, window into it, because that was a decision at the time that was very long in the making and really very contentious, right? Yes. There was a lot of debate about that, and there was a real timidity at first to sort of fully embrace it in terms of playing for money and other things like and that. And it required investment, which leagues right. don't like which to do. which they don't like to do. <laughs> um, I think that the leagues will tend to still take a conservative posture, and so they probably will seek more of a low-risk monetization by claiming integrity fees or licensing the data and other things and let others take the risk and kind of be out there. Um, so that's thought number one. Thought number two in terms of who owns the customer, I think there's different classes of customers. People who are frequent players, I don't think anybody's going to own them. I think it's going to be more like uh, credit cards. You're going to have several in your wallet. And oh, you may have acquired okay. them based on offers. Um, you, you know, you can roll a balance from one to the other, and there's, it'll be tremendously competitive, which is what you already see on right. WFAN, right? Because right. right. largely it's a commoditized product. I right. mean, uh, 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 you know, a money line bet, whatever, it's the same from mm -hmm. any, maybe you shop yeah. the odds a little bit, but it's basically a commoditized product. So my guess is that 
you know, you carry three or four credit cards in your wallet, you'll carry three or four sports betting uh, accounts on your mobile device, largely acquired based on the um, promotional, you know, initiatives that they do. And the quality of the UX. Well, then that gets right? to the next part. So that's, so, that's a big factor right, here so on I digital, think, right, so as I opposed think that, to kiosks where so, they're all the same. So for the hardcore player, I think the more it will be offer-driven because they'll tolerate some UX deficiencies in terms of if you're going to match my deposit right. up to the first $500, I'll put up with a lot. The casual player, yes, I think is going to be won over by a couple of things. UX... And then, like, rewards programs and stuff, which is the mm. same as the casinos have done for the other stuff, right? I mean, but the, in the more traditional model of casinos, you have probably more of a three segments because you've got the hardcore who are very loyal because they have um, credit and other things at one place and an mm -hmm. account and a host mm -hmm. and they can get tickets to the big fight or the big show, whatever. Then you've got the casual player who just likes the Borgata or whatever because, mm -hmm. you know, they like the restaurants or they like his location on the boardwalk or what have you. And then in the middle, you've got kind of the, the market that's being more contested. I think in sports betting, it'll probably be the two categories. The sort of the hardcore players who are going to be, they're not going to be monogamous. They'll go where the action is. Then you've got the casual players who you probably will be able to keep with effective user interface and then rewards, right, right. and loyalty platforms that kind of keep you right. attached. I, I can't wait to see how this plays out because I'm, I'm just thinking of... of as a customer watching, and I watch a fair amount of NFL. So okay, there's a game on tonight. For yeah. Who's playing tonight? No, no Thursday night. It's oh, the, okay. The, the last week That's was right. the last oh, week. Yeah, okay. Anyway, um, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to get a, get in on this game. What app am I opening to do that? Yes. I, I can't wait to see how this plays out. No, I agree, and it's there's a huge amount riding on it, and. Um, you know, it's who owns the customer, who has the credit card number, mm -hmm. you know. That's what I mean, who gets the data yeah. of, of their preferences, yeah. of, of all the things they're going to give up, well, essentially, in the process. That's a different... I don't think the teams in the leagues ever have to stand out on that, because the relation, the affinity still does lie, right? There, You'll have affinity or connection to... The, the sports book or whatever, but that's still transactional affinity. It's not the deep emotional affinity. So I don't think that the teams, even if they right, say... Right, but know, it's advertising affinity, and when we see no, Facebook and Google dominating the digital yes, ad market, yes. the reason they do that is because they have all the behavioral data, which makes the advertising Correct. ostensibly more... But I think teams that sort of just seed that are making a mistake. Just by the mere act of asking, you can get a lot from your fans. Mm -hmm. okay. If you ask in a polite and clever way... Yeah, yeah. fair enough. Right. You, do, you, you do have that special relationship Correct. that's not it, true right. with other brands. Correct. That's And uh, people should never lose sight of that, that you can ask for things that others would have to really bribe for. You can just ask for and you right. will get because they want a relationship. Yeah. Speaking of asking, our last piece here uh, before we let Seth go, how much football is enough? And, mm. and we talked about this <laughs> right. a little bit. Great question, um, Joe. We are now in the age of, depending on when you're listening to this, there will be a spring football league that will be launching right after the Super Bowl. There's the XFL. There are at least six other versions, whether you want to take – Arena football, CFL, flag football, player control football, your call football, Ricky yeah. Williams football, yeah. whatever you freedom want to do, football. freedom, whatever, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Um, Seth, you worked in NFL Europe, yes. Uh, so you know there was the USFL a hundred years ago, which people kind of use the myth of the USFL. There was the XFL before. Yes. The current FXL XFL has five hundred million reasons to try and make it succeed. Mm. Um, how much football is enough? And, and in your opinion, will any of these things actually work? Well, no pressure. On no pressure. Let's <laughs> just in general. Let's take the Sorry. first part. 
first because these podcasts endure for a long time, and I don't want freezing cold takes to play this back a few years from now. So let's take the first part first. One thing I would absolutely uh, uh, validate for is there is tremendous year-round demand from fans for football. Some kind of football. Some kind of football. Mm. And the NFL has seen it, right? I mean, the Mm. NFL has been brilliant during the time that we've been affiliated in creating things in the offseason that... In almost each and every time, the first reaction was nobody's going to be interested in that. <laughs> the combine, being the combine being the latest mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. Um, where they've made it into a week-long platform. Mm-hmm. It generates eyeballs that would be the envy of many sports properties around the world mm-hmm. to watch a bunch of guys in t-shirts and shorts, you know, lifting weights and running and jumping. And so that, to me, is still clear evidence that there is an abundance of demand every week of the year, mm-hmm. not just during the football season that we currently understand, every week of the year for football content, without a doubt. So that's the starting mm-hmm. point. That's what everybody sees, right? And so mm-hmm. they all see the same thing, which is, gosh, the football season's relatively short. It ends with this incredible crescendo, and then people, you know, maybe they want a week off, but then they want a little bit more of it, and mm-hmm. let's give it to them. So I agree with that premise. The challenge from a business standpoint, and I learned this in NFL Europe the hard way, is that football, um, unique among the sports, is extraordinarily expensive to present. Mm-hmm. It's got the biggest rosters, the most coaches, the most material to airlift right. from place to place. You have to feed the guys a lot to keep them big. I mean, there's a lot. They, they, mm-hmm. they, they don't fit a lot of them in a hotel room. You know, they, they're, they're, so it's very, very expensive to present. And so... The challenge becomes the economic challenge of sustaining when you don't have the high margin dollars. Because just selling tickets to a game, it's very expensive to open a stadium and staff at security and you know ushers and so forth. And so it's low, those are low margin dollars, ticket sales dollars. The higher margin dollars come from broadcasting and media, of course, and sponsorship. Those are good margin dollars. And those revenue streams take a lot longer to develop. And in this world now, uh, getting distribution for these new football properties won't be the challenge, and they already obviously the AAF already has, and they've mm-hmm. just been announcing um, in the last couple of weeks their just you know their arrangement with uh, CBS, CBS right and you know they're going to have it's going to be great like first quality CBS caliber you right. know uh, football presentation. That's assuming fans can find CBS Sports Network on their dial. No doubt, but I think it starts. I'm sorry, on, that was a little bit snarky, but. On, um, <laughs> But remember my kids, right? You're, you said right. dial. My kids don't have dial. They right. don't think that right. way. They'll find it. And smart content discovery will find it for them if they're interested. Um, but so it will look like a first-class quality football presentation. It won't be um, mm-hmm. in any way less than what fans would expect. So I think it's off to a good start. But it's still, just to be clear, though, right. without belaboring this point, yeah. it will still require at least the, the, the linear uh, presentation of the sport any of these sports will still require someone to say, okay, at 1 o'clock, yeah, I'm, willing to I'm the turning time. on right. the TV, Absolutely. and I'm going to right. channel 213 right. to watch. <laughs> to watch. And 215. So, right. so okay. nobody, that's the part. So they will get, when I was at NFL Europe, I could not get distribution wow. in Germany for my product. Wow. I couldn't, I certainly couldn't sell it to anybody, but I also couldn't buy it from anybody because at that time, there was a belief, I don't think it was correct, and I think history has proven that, but there was a belief and a conservatism, this was the German media market, very conservative and, and very concentrated, um, that even if they sold me the time, they would kill their lead into the next thing and they couldn't afford wow. to lose the audience mm-hmm. for the next thing. And so they wouldn't even sell me the time. 
ironically, what's happened in the in the ensuing uh, decade with over the top is now all the more traditional broadcasters need to be responsive to over the top. They all need niche programming to keep exactly. very That's strong true. verticals that are irony. sticky. Mm-hmm. So the irony is so rich that now they come to the NFL saying, "Hey, I love your programming because it's got a defined audience that will stick with it." Right. And they need that to compete against the OTT services. So the irony that just was a function of timing. Um, so they can solve now a problem I was unable to solve with my kind of fledgling football league, NFL Europe, which is they can get the distribution. Whether they can get the eyeballs, nobody knows. Right. And whether they can monetize those eyeballs, mm. nobody knows. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Wow. So you want to get to our final two? Yeah. Boy, we can keep going. This is, this is terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Seth, we like to ask all our guests a couple of standardized questions. Sure. First one is about you uh, keeping up with all the news and mm. developments in this industry. How do you stay smart? Stay smart. Thank you for the underlying uh, premise. <laughs> which is that how do you become yeah, smart? Because that would have been probably more accurate, but I'll take yours as a more charitable that at least at one point in the past I was smart and that I can stay smart. Um, kidding aside, I think having an open mind, being curious, uh, being willing to admit that you don't know everything and that you might be wrong and that there you can learn something from somebody else or something else is the, the first step and then just consume information ask questions what do you like to consume like what what are some of your go-to sources for what you would consider valuable professional information or insights like do you listen to podcasts you follow people on Twitter uh, more, yeah. more Twitter is probably uh, my uh, chief mm-hmm. platform for discovery it's okay. probably my number one okay. um, just because of the convenience of it right um, any faves you want to mention no I don't want to okay. I don't want to than Joe Fav right yeah. exactly uh, well that would be my number one yeah. but okay. we, I already did the fanboy stuff before yeah. so uh, no I find that to be quite useful because it has a combination of sort of a linear stream which is kind of shaped by the cadence of current events which helps you because obviously that's sort of when things are of most immediate relevance. But then thankfully, beneficially, there are enough smart people who kind of use it almost as a little publishing platform that there's stuff that's of a little bit more generalized or kind of less less of a time-bound nature that, you right. know, also keeps... So I find that that's quite effective. But I also... Um, I just like to ask people questions, right? right? So when I meet people, I like to understand how their business works. I like to understand how they make decisions. So I ask a lot of questions mm-hmm. of people when I meet them. Maybe it's annoying to them, but I'm genuinely <laughs> interested in like how they do what they do, why they do what they do. Um, and so that's also how I try to get smart. Um, and then, frankly, I've also, over the years, and this would be, I would say, a common, a lot of people have asked me sort of what, you know, how would I define my career. I've always been willing to take chances to learn things, right? Mm-hmm. So I've... There are some people who are very happy to just sort of sit back and let it come to them and kind of maintain the status quo. That was never my interest. And frankly, in the organizations where I worked, that slot was sort of taken by people. So if I wanted to get ahead, I kind of had to you know, right. be a little bit more um, mm. play offense as opposed to defense. Lean in. Right, lean yeah. in. There you go. And so I kind of put myself into situations where I was going to have to learn things pretty quickly. Um, and so I've always advocated that as a strategy. If you're if you have reasonable intelligence, it's sometimes good to sort of walk the tightrope with no net because then you really got to figure it out. So like I created a rewards program for the Jets, and you know I can say now five years after it's been pretty successful. I didn't know anything about rewards programs when we started the process of creating Jets rewards. Uh, thankfully, we had a project team at the Jets of really smart people, smarter than me, uh, and we knew how to ask the right questions and where to go to get the information. 
and a willingness to be open-minded right. to what that information, what, 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 what people were saying. And mm -hmm. so we learned on the fly. And the reality with being smart is if you're one page ahead in the book, as far as anybody else knows, you finished it, right? <laughs> yeah, Just, exactly. That's a great line. That's a good way of saying right? it. So yeah. I've also, you got to, you know, fake it till you make it. There's yeah. nothing wrong with that either. <laughs> I like that. Uh, okay, and the second question is... Um, you, uh, see if you could offer some advice to folks listening, particularly younger people developing their careers. Mm. And, and maybe as part of the answer, you could tell us about how you, through the years, have hired people because you've hired a lot yeah. of people. What do you look for? Right. What techniques do you use as sure. a hiring manager? Yes. So, yeah. Well, and they're related because the advice would be the same. So okay. I have always been very, very... Um, I've usually asked people the first question in any kind of interview is the most simple. Why do you want to work here? Okay. Mm -hmm. And sadly, it's a simple question, but that's the beauty of it. Right. But sadly, the vast majority of people, especially young people, make the critical mistake of answering, well, I've always been We're, a huge I've always wanted to work in sports. Yeah. Correct. I've I love always the been, Jets. I love <laughs> the Jets. I love football. Mm. I've always wanted to work in sports. And immediately after hearing that, I would sort of slide back in my chair <laughs> and start to think about something else because I would always have two concerns. One, that walking through the front door every day would satisfy your ambition. You're working in sports, you're working for the Team X, whatever, and so your drive to achieve things would be reduced by the fact that your appetite was uh, satiated. And two, you didn't also understand that basically the basics of business are the basics of business, right? As a marketer, I could market anything and right. business is business and so if it's if you there's some unique things of sports but there's also a lot that's the same as yeah. everywhere else and if you don't mm -hmm. understand that we're going to have a hard time right. being successful so that loops back to sort of what's my advice for people is number one be prepared to answer that question in a good way that differentiates you by the way because everybody answers to that way mm -hmm. but number two really understand what working in sports means beyond the logo on the shirt they're going to give you on your first day in the job, right? Or whatever. understand what the tasks are and have some perspective on how to do that. So the people I hired were people who had genuine insights into how we can connect with fans, how we can mm -hmm. solve the challenges that we have. Um, so you really do need to, if you want to separate yourself from the pack and you want to stand out, you really do need to have a point of view on the business of sports, not just sports as a cultural phenomenon and so forth. And then the last thing I would yeah. say to people, just as the sheer numbers, working for a team or a league is a tiny, tiny pool of people, and there's not an enormous amount of turnover either, so the number of jobs is very low. So if you're interested in quote-unquote working in sports, you have to think much more broadly about working in mm -hmm. sports marketing, sports yep. sponsorship, agencies. There's an entire ecosystem that goes way beyond, and there's just so many more jobs. Mm -hmm. So you'd be unwise starting out to narrow your search so much that basically you got to hit the bullseye in order to get a job. It's just smarter to kind of have the whole board. Cool. One quick follow-up. Um, did you ever get about assignments in the interviewing process? Yes. Okay. Frequently, yeah. Okay, so you're a fan of that. As we hear a lot, we hear that a lot from students in our. And program. I would never. I would. I started doing it a few years ago, and I'll never not do it. Okay. Again, can you mention anything specific? Yeah, sure. They were yeah. real problems generally. Yeah. I mean, it okay. was. I would normally have um, a three-part assignment. One would be. One of the things I also found, again, to my regret and chagrin, was that um, in my job, a lot of people were not very good at writing, yeah. mm. and communication is 
of such importance. So normally the assignments were threefold. One would generally be uh, a little deck, maybe seven to ten pages, kind of framing some issue. It was usually more of a, like a conceptual strategic. Another would be write a letter to fans, like a, in the voice of the team, on a very, like write an end of the year thanks for being a great fan letter, you know, 250 words. And then the third would usually be something like write an awesome Instagram post or something. Wow, that's uh, cool. And yeah. so I wanted to kind of cut it three mm -hmm. different ways. So yes, it was about like their writing skill, which wow. I find I find writing is a very good proxy for a lot of things because if you if your thoughts are straight, you can it's easy to write. If your thoughts mm -hmm. are not straight, we're you with can, you on that. Take you forever because yeah. yeah. you just can't. Um, also, it's a good window into like their just sheer level of intelligence. If right. there's and it's also like one of these open book tests. If there's typos and stuff like that, you know, <laughs> it, it, that's a pretty good indicator of their level of care and attention to detail. Um, so. It was a good kind of, it had, it worked at different levels. Right. It, there was the substantive level, there was sort of the process level to it, and then there was sort of just the, like, let's see how much time and effort somebody puts into this yeah. thing in response. Do they take it seriously, or do they think right. this is just kind of, you know, sort of BS hoop that they're being made to right. jump through? Cool. Um, so I value that a lot. Awesome. That was really good. Good well, stuff. Thanks for having me. Guys. Covered, yeah, a lot, covered a lot of yeah, stuff. Really, well, really a pleasure. Really, and I hope, uh, let's see what comes true. Come we, back in six months. Well, that's months what I was going to say. You got freezing cold. What the hell so are I, I want to do a follow up so. with Seth at, uh, sometime in the new year where we get into the subject of the league's relationships with the big social platforms. Because mm. I think something's going to have to give soon. Yes. And if we can't go into it now. No, but that. But I, I have a it. feeling you might. I have a point Beyond, of view. I, I yeah. have a feeling you have yeah, a point yeah. of view. Yeah, yeah, no, I <laughs> Which I have a feeling might be close to mine. Yeah, it might. Uh, based on a last yes, one of our other conversations. Right. Um, but yeah, I'd love to do that because I think t 2019, will, that's going to be a big question. It's right? going to start to come to a Because look, no this is coming home to roost now. Correct. Privacy and, and value and things like that. Absolutely. So anyway, we'll tease everybody with that ending. I like that. Um, Seth Rabinowitz, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And guys. we wish you well with your. A newly reestablished yes, uh, Ventures. Ventures. Uh, where, can, where can we find you, by the way? Well, that's all to come in. in okay, the you, first are few you months. on Twitter? Uh, yes. So uh, your handle? Oh, geez. I think it's <laughs> at Seth Rabinowitz. I told you I'm read only. I'll tell okay. you in a second. Hold on. Um, yes, at Seth Rabinowitz. Okay, so that's S E T H R A B I N O W I T W T. Cool. Perfect. All right. Uh, Joe, thank you. Good way to start. I already the new, have 110 uh, followers, by the way. Right. So when we well, see each other again, we'll I was going to say, when, when, in, a, in a couple minutes, you'll have 111, or 112, <laughs> 113, if yep. we include Jordan. No. By the way, quick shout out to Tom Cerny. He's yes. sorry he missed you. Uh, he's a, a father once again. A father once again. Mm -hmm. And yeah. a uh, uh, former employee of mine. Of course. Who yeah. did a good job. Yeah. Uh, really great guy. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time.